All right. Good morning again, Grace Covenant. That wasn't me. There it is. Good morning. Good morning. Get that guttural in there. There we go. Uh, what a beautiful morning it is. Um, it is a beautiful Palm Sunday. Uh, so as we are approaching the celebration of the, the week of Christ's passion, um, it's a beautiful time to come together, uh, especially for this passage in Ephesians today. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you would turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, whenever I was um, kind of looking at the, the course of Ephesians and trying to get a breakdown of where the sermons would fall, um, I did not pay attention to what Sundays would be what. In other words, I did not proactively plan um, what passages we would be in based on holidays or anything like that. Um, so providentially, we are going to talk about Ephesians chapter 2 um, in the first five verses where God explains through Paul the absolute depravity of man and the best conjunction in the entire scriptures, which is, but God. But God. And so today we have the privilege of, of looking at our dire need before God and what he chose by his good graces to do to redeem his people to himself. So we're going to read the first five verses of Ephesians chapter 2, uh, and then we'll get into our, our text this morning. If you would stand with me while, uh, while I read Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5, and this is in honor of the one who has given us this word. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among, among whom we also we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we glorify you today, and we thank you so so much for the opportunity for us to come together as a body uh, to look at our helpless state uh, before your grace. Help us to understand the, the, the depravity of man, the, the need for a Savior, and the grace that you provided us for your own good glory. I pray that you would remove any distractions from me, any hindrances, any nerves, and I pray that your truth would be spoken, the text would be revealed, and the Spirit would apply that text to our lives. In your holy name I pray. Amen. All right, you can be seated. All right, so last week we finished up Paul's introduction to his letter. So the first chapter of Ephesians is really kind of a prologue or an introduction where Paul takes time to go through salvation, give us a glimpse into the salvation of God. He, he mentions several different points about our salvation. Um, if you've missed those, those are available on our website, so I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the last few about chapter 1. But now that he's through that introduction, he's going to uh, shift gears just a little bit. He's still kind of in an attitude of prayer, Paul is, but he's going to shift gears a little bit as he begins chapter 2. And he's going to tell us the state of man. He's going to really reveal to us uh, through the Spirit's um, uh, power through him to reveal to us the, the sad, depraved condition of man. Because truly, there, there's no way for us to see, there's no better way for us to see the grace of God being rich, the grace of God being overflowing, 
his love mind-boggling, his mercy beyond our comprehension. There's no way for us to truly understand God and all of those attributes without us understanding how separated from him we are uh, and how in need of a savior we are and how depraved we are, how deep our sins go, how helpless we are, how dead, spiritually dead we are before a holy God. And the reason why it's so amazing to see this passage fall on Palm Sunday is when we take the depravity of man and the sheer helplessness um, and man being dead in his sin, and you apply the grace of God to that by his own love for his own glory, it brings you to such a status of praise that it, it, it makes the Palm Sunday look like something that's not as good as it sounds. I don't have a good analogy. Sorry. But Palm Sunday, the people that sang Hosanna and laid down their palm branches and laid their coats across the, the, the road, as was prophesied in, in the prophets to fulfill that, yes, they were praising the Son of God. But did they understand, truly understand, what Christ was coming into Jerusalem to do that week? No, they didn't truly understand it. We, by the grace of God, are able to look back and see what Christ was going to fulfill. And Christ had spoken about what he was going to do, but we have the privilege on this Palm Sunday where we get to celebrate the start of the week, the last week of Christ's life on earth. And we get to be brought by this passage. And I truly think each one of us here will be brought to a point of deeper praise and deeper adoration for our God because of how dead we were before his spirit changed us, how helpless we were before his grace impacted us, how desperately we needed rescue before his love brought us to that position. So that's what I want to do today is look through this text to see just what God did for us. So the title of the message is But God. This is part one. Um, all 10 verses of, of chapter two are, are really one thought, mainly one thought. It's broken up into a couple long sentences, as Paul tends to do. But I couldn't fit all 10 verses into one sermon. So for the sake of, of not keeping you guys here for three hours, okay, we're going to break it into two weeks. Um, and so the first five verses, although it's, it ends almost in the middle of a thought, uh, in the end of verse five, it says, by grace you have been saved. I didn't want to leave us on the depravity of man lest we face that for the entire week because God has impacted us, has he not? And instead of falling and leaving this, this body on the depravity of man, I wanted to give us a taste, just a taste of his grace and glory uh, before we, we uh, uh, let out today. So that's the plan. Uh, but God is the title of the sermon. The first point this morning is death. So I'm going to reread verse 1. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Dead in your transgressions and sin. Death entered because of one man. Genesis chapter 3. You can write that down. You don't have to turn there right now, but I want to make sure and establish that death entered into the world because of Adam's sin. Adam chose to disobey God. Before Adam did that, there was no sin in the world. There was no death in the world. Not even animals killed themselves or each other. There was simply no death in the world. And not only did Adam's sin bring death, physical death, into the world, but it plunged all of humanity into death 
being dead in sin from that moment going forward. Spiritual death was also brought into the world. Romans chapter 5, if you would turn there with me. We are going to be back and forth in Romans chapter 5 a little bit today, so if you have a marker or something to put there, it might make it a little easier. But Romans chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 12 and 14 right now. I don't think I mentioned earlier, but there are sermon notes in the back if anybody would like one. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, and it reads, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the trespass of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. And so Paul, even here in Romans, and, and it's often said that Ephesians is almost like a, a, a more brief or concise version of Romans. In Romans 5, Paul is giving us more detail about the death of man, the trespasses and sins of man that has plunged us to a helpless state. What can a dead man do? Is there anything that a dead man can do? Can a dead man attempt to save himself? Can a dead man attempt to do better in life? Can a dead man roll over and lay in a better position so that someone can help him? Can he grasp even a helpful line or, or, or something to be cast to him? No. A dead man, it's vitally important that we understand that men are dead in their sins and unable to respond to God because of our transgressions and sins. We are unable before the Spirit's work within us to do anything in response to God. And Paul tells us what we're dead in, transgressions and sins. And these two words, it almost sounds like Paul's being redundant. He does this a lot to emphasize, um, kind of emphasize what he's trying to get across. If you remember in last week's passage, he used uh, four different words to describe the same thing stacked on top of each other to bring and deliver emphasis. So we have this idea here of transgressions and sins. And these two words, really, the transgressions is a mind of, of almost unconsciously breaking the law of God. In other words, not intentionally breaking the law of God. And then the sins has the idea of purposely breaking the law of God. And so in the original language, this transgressions and sins are, are all-encompassing. Whether you didn't mean to break God's law, so let's think, if we were trying to do a good act, right? We were trying to, to give to the poor, and the physical process of giving money to the poor, that's a good thing, right? We would say that's a good thing, helping someone in need, but we don't do it with the right motives that we don't necessarily have full control over. It's almost as though we didn't mean to sin. We still did. It's still a breaking of God's law. It's still just as serious before a holy God. But that idea of accidental, if you will, breaking of law of God versus I'm going to intentionally lie about my taxes to get more money that way. Okay? So it's the idea of two different ideas. And so Paul is all encompassing. He's giving us emphasis. He is taking the idea of trespasses and sins and saying we are completely dead across the board. There's nothing that we do that's redemptive. And Ezekiel 37, you can write that down. You don't have to turn there. But Ezekiel 37 gives us this same picture in the first three verses of that chapter. So Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 3. 
This is going to be a vision that, that God takes Ezekiel, and, and I'm not going to read the whole entire story. I'd highly, highly recommend this week or even this afternoon as you rest in the Lord on the Lord's Day. Take time to read Ezekiel 36 and 37. Um, the picture of men's dead bones being brought to life by God is one of the most beautiful pictures of salvation uh, described anywhere in Scripture. I'm just going to read the first three verses because I want, to, I want you to understand Ezekiel taken by the Spirit of Yahweh and caused to see this, this display of, of bones knows that only one, one God can make an impact here. So it reads, The hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of Yahweh and caused me to rest in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them all around, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord Yahweh, you know. And the, the, the passage goes on from there, and I won't again read it in detail, but ultimately God brings these dry bones. And the idea of dry bones is to emphasize the length of depth, the, the, the length of time and death that these bones had been sitting there. Bones are, when, when a fresh bone has been there, there's marrow, there's, it's alive, right? It's, it's, not, it's not a dry bone, but the idea of dry bones is fully dead. No hope, no life, nothing within them. So we have this valley of dry bones that God, in his own sovereignty and power, will, before Ezekiel, bring back to life. And eventually you'll read in the text where these bones are not only brought back together in the shape of a body, but they grow tendons, and they grow the cartilage, and they grow the bones, and the blood is flowing again, and God restores these dead bones back to life. That's the picture of the depravity, the death where man's condition is before a holy God. It's not just physical death that we're talking about, although that is not that is also an enemy of God, but the spiritual death of men as well. I want, to, I want to take this analogy that I've often heard about salvation and, and really wipe it away and tell you the, what Scripture says using the same analogy. So if you've ever heard of analog the analogy of salvation, saying that someone who's lost is almost like a swimmer in the middle of the ocean, who's bobbing up and down, and their hand is just above the water, right? And, and what God does, and again, this is an incorrect version, but what God does is by us who preach the gospel, we throw them a life preserver. And all that person has to do is close their hand. That's all they have to do. And, then, and we would go, yeah, that's, you know, that's great. The gospel is a life preserver. I love that. No. What scripture says is that the person is not floating at top with a hand able to grasp anything. They are a dry bed of bones in the bottom of the ocean that God has to go down pick off the bottom of the ocean, bring back up, breathe life into, and then he puts the preserver around them. That's the correct use of that analogy. Man cannot in any way, shape, or form even grasp or close their hand around God's gift of salvation. Dead men can do nothing. So what is that, where does that bring us? Where does the idea of total depravity bring us? And we're going to get more into that, but where does death and sin bring us? If you look at yourself and you go, okay, so if I'm a dead, spiritually, if I'm a dead carcass of bones in the bottom of the ocean, as the analogy you just gave, Josh, what am I going to do about it? You need a Savior, do you not? 
Being dead in your trespasses and sins makes you go, I need a savior. There's nothing I can do about this. What scripture tells me is before a holy God, I'm a pile of dry bones. And there's nothing I can do about it. And so we have to understand that being dead in sins means that we have to have someone act on our behalf to bring us to a position where we are alive to be able to respond to the gospel, to be able to place our faith in God. This is a beautiful picture of the depravity, a beautiful description of the depravity of man. And again, I'm going to use the word beautiful to describe depravity because God's grace looks so much more tremendous when we understand how bad we need it, when we understand how helpless we are. When we truly see our own depravity, God's grace shines that much more. So let's move on to the next portion of the text. We're going to look at depravity. This is going to be in verses 2 and 3. Point 2 is depravity. So if you're back in Ephesians, if you're not, turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 2 again. Verses 2 and 3 read, In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among whom we also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Excuse me. So I want to address something quickly because we're going to come back to this in the third point. It does say formally in both verses 2 and 3. We are going to come back to that. What I want us to see is what our position is before God before the formally. Does that make sense? So before the form. That's a mind twister, isn't it? Before the formally. But I want us to see where we're at before the formally. Okay? So hang on to that. We'll get back to it. So here we see in verse 2 specifically, there are three agents that all have a hand in this spiritual death. Three things that while we are dead in our sins that we tend to be led about by, that we tend to uh, not really comprehend is, is guiding us, but we see it. There's there's power in the air, the, the spirits working, um, the group of people known as sons of disobedience. So what do we make of all this? What this is telling us is that we, first of all, walk according to the course of this world. I want to bring you to uh, attention to two small words here because I think it's very important for us to understand as, as Gentiles versus how Paul is referencing the Jews as well. So in verse 2, it reads, in which you formerly walked. And in verse 3, it says, among whom we all also formerly walked. So Paul changes the tense of who he's talking to. He's, he's Or not the tense, excuse me, the, um, the group that he's talking about. And in verse 2, remember, he's writing this letter to a group of Gentile believers in the city of Ephesus. And so he's saying in verse 2, the Gentiles walked according to the course of this world. What did the Gentiles do? They, they were pagan, right? They worshipped demons. They worshipped false gods. But lest the Gentiles go, yes, but that means we are saved differently? Or, or what's, what's going on here? Paul loops back in the Jews in verse 3, who were also formerly conducted, excuse me, formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of our flesh. 
So Paul, remember, he is still writing in a world that has two categories of people. Jew, according to him, Jew and the rest of the world, Gentiles. And Paul is making a point here. We're going to see that Paul is making a point here that both Jew and Gentile must come to God the same way. And that's by his grace, awakening them out of the death of their sins. The whole world, all nations, Jew and Gentile alike, are in the same condition before God. And so when we think about verse 2, walks according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the uh, Sunday school class last week, Ryan was talking about at Summit. I'm not, I'm not sure how many were there for the Sunday school, but Ryan, one of the elders at Summit, was talking about the powers of the air or the, the demonic powers. And when Paul references rulers and the powers of the air, he is referencing Satan and his minions, his demons. Did you know that walking the course of this world is following the demonic rule that God has allowed to be established in this world? The depravity of man is seen no better in the display of senseless violence that occurred this week. When three small children and three adults were killed for senseless reasons, for no reason other than demonic influence. The depravity of man is seen nowhere in no better display than when the life of an innocent person, innocent according to man's standards, when an innocent life of an innocent person, especially an innocent child, is snuffed out. That is the depravity of man on full and utter display. And that is the course of this world. That is by influence of the ruler of the power of the air. What does that mean? What is Paul saying? That the general course of this world, the culture of this world where we find ourselves, is in line with Satan's own agendas. The demonic agendas of this world is where Paul was writing to the Gentiles. This is where you find yourself. Ephesus was one of the largest pagan cities of Paul's time. The, the amount of different temples, the amount of God of, of uh, pagan worship, false gods, idolatry, uh, sexual immorality, um, the, the idea of, of open um, sexual practices to worship just on the streets, temple prostitution, those kinds of things. That's the world that Paul is writing to. Believe me, as bad as our world seems right now, it's not as bad truly as what Paul is describing the Gentiles in Ephesus. Now you may think, Josh, this is really depressing. Good, I want you to be depressed about this because I'm bringing in the beauty of God soon. So hang with me because Paul does the same thing. Because again, the glory of God shines that much brighter when you look around and go, this is how things are, and I was a part of that. This is how things are, except Paul says formally. So keep that in the back of your mind. Because sin truly did taint all of creation. When, when Adam fell, sin tainted everything. The depravity of man, I keep using that phrase. I want you to understand the depravity of man is not the idea that man is as bad as he possibly can be. Because he isn't. By God's grace, no single human being is as bad as they possibly could be if left to their own sinful ways. Total depravity, the depravity of man is the idea that every aspect of the human makeup, 
mind, body, soul, and spirit, has been tainted by sin. The death of man, spiritual death of man, is complete. It's all-encompassing. There is no portion of a human makeup that can escape this death that is brought into the world by sin. In 2 Corinthians, you can write this down, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4. It reads, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Again, Satan, having power, the ruler of the power of the air, has blinded men's minds so that they cannot see the gospel. Now, does that excuse the responsibility of those who would create or commit such a heinous crime that we saw this week? Or those who would kill their own children in the womb? Or, or all the atrocities that we can think that sin brings us to? No, it doesn't excuse them. They are fully responsible for their actions. But what it should cause us as believers to understand is that God has allowed Satan to, cl to cloud their minds and we should be in ever and always a state of prayer for those who are not converted. Because if we truly understand that, that men are dead in their sins and dead in their trespasses and unable to turn to God without him working in them, should we not be falling before that holy God who does that work to plead for his mercy for all of those that would act this way? Because the ruler of the power of the air has been given the opportunity to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, less unless God acts within them. Church body, pray. Pray for those who do not know the gospel. For it is only God's work in them that they will be able to see the truth of their position before holy God and their need of his work in them. The last portion of chapter, or excuse me, of verse 2, it says, The Spirit is now working in the sons of disobedience. The idea here of sons um, is used in the Old Testament to describe a group of people. It's not actually offspring. Um, it's, a, it's a word described, used to describe a group of people. And so this same Spirit that works in the power of the air also works in the sons of disobedience as well. This is the mindset, the idea of possibly... What he's alluding to is the idea of, of demonic oppression or possession or the actual working of Satan within the lives of people who are under his control. And Jesus also references, you can just write down John 8 and read it later if you'd like, but even Jesus references to the Pharisees that they're of their father, the devil. Right? Those who are unconverted are known and seen as children of the evil one, being offspring of Satan. That is a very dire place to be, is it not? The Gentiles that, Jesus, that uh, Paul is describing, that is an absolute hopeless situation. Not only are we dead in our sins and can do nothing about it, but then we follow because of our own nature and own desires, because we're sons of, of the, the ruler of the air. We follow his ways. We follow the course of the world that he's in charge of. Those who are in sin are absolutely hopeless. And such were some of us. And I'm building up to this conjunction that I want you guys to be excited about. 
Now we've looked at verse 2, and it's the idea of the world around us. And now Paul's going to loop in the Jews and bring it to our internal as well. So we've seen our death in our transgressions and sins. We've seen the world's impact on how we live and how we continue to sin before God. And now in verse 3, he's going to talk about our internal struggles that lead us to sin as well. Verse 3 reads, Among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. rest. Our, our sin cannot be blamed on simply outward impacts either. Now, we can, we can say, yes, I was influenced. Yes, you know, Satan does rule the world in, in, in such a way. God is sovereign over all, but he's allowed Satan a, a limited amount of authority. And so we know how, how that works, and we know the temptations of the world around us, and that the pagans uh, in Ephesus, the Christians that were there, former pagans, I'm sure they saw the temptations walking to the market, right? I can't imagine an open temple prostitution sex cult, because that's what it is, that would use that act to worship the false gods. The temptation that would be in, in, involved in that. Our world has not gotten that, that bad yet, thankfully, by God's grace. But that that kind of impact of the world is mind-boggling. But then we look at verse 3, and Paul goes, lest you think it's just the outside influence of the world, your own lusts also lead you to sin. So he's taking away the ability for these, these people, for us, to be able to blame Satan. How easy would it be to blame Satan? Well, it's his fault. He's in charge of the world. I just did what I thought would be good because he's, he made me do it. No, Paul is bringing it personal as well. So we conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing our own desires. This is what works out in 1 John 2.16. You can turn there if you'd like. It's just one verse I'll read quickly. But it's 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16. It reads, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And that sounds oddly familiar, very close to Genesis 3.6. Genesis 3.6, when Adam, I mean, excuse me, when Eve was looking at the tree, and you can see the moment that she decided, Scripture records the moment that she decided to go ahead and eat that fruit. Genesis 3.6 reads, Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. That sounds oddly like lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, does it not? And now Paul's describing here that this is something that we still struggle with in our death, in our spiritual deadness of our transgressions and sins. We follow our own lusts of our flesh, our own desires of our flesh and our mind, and our very nature, hear this, our very nature is to be children of wrath. What does that phrase mean, children of wrath? That the wrath of God rests upon those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, in their transgressions and sins. The wrath of God against sin. A holy God cannot excuse or look upon sin. He is perfectly just, perfectly holy. His wrath and justice abides on those whom are dead in their sins. 
It abides on them. They are children of wrath, begot in very, by very nature, by very creation. In the womb, as David says in the Psalms, in the womb we are created as enemies of God because of our sin nature inherited from the first Adam. I want you to wrap your minds very, just in, in entirety, as much as you can. Meditate on this idea. Children of wrath, by nature, that is the epitome of hopelessness before a holy God. That is the epitome of depravity before a sinless sovereign king. When God's wrath abides on his enemies, that is you and I before the Spirit saved us. That is every person who has not put their faith in Christ by his free gift of grace. So that should do two things for us, each and every one of us in here. That should make us go, number one, thank you, God, for your grace. And number two, oh, God, please, please convert more to yourself. How, how can you use me? Lord, use me as you will. Pour me out as a drink offering. Whatever it is that you need to do in my life, Lord, to bring about the salvation of more people, please do that. Because only God makes the change in people. Now, yes, he uses the preaching of his word. Scripture is very clear about that. He uses the body of Christ, his church, to go out and make impacts in the world. But were it not for using them, no more people would be saved. In other words, God has to be the one acting on those who are dead in their spiritual, or spiritually dead in their transgressions and sins. John 6.44 tells us this. John 6.44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one wants the things of God. We are by nature children of wrath. R.C. Sproul says it this way. The problem is that even though we have the power to choose, we are dead to the things of God and as a result have no desire for the things of God. Rather, we follow a different course. We follow it willfully. We follow it freely in the sense of doing what we want to do. But with respect to spiritual things, we are dead. Our very nature is children of wrath, dead in our sins. Turn back to Romans chapter 5. As I mentioned, we would be here a couple different times. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, it reads, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that we, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, so there's two words to keep in mind, the wrath of God, enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So I brought up that text in context because I wanted you to see 
the wrath of God, being saved from that wrath, that we were enemies of God. There's a slight hope there. Do you guys see the hope around those words? We're getting there. We're getting closer. But I want you to see I'm driving home the point that God, that, excuse me, that humans before God are enemies of him and children of wrath. We, before Christ saves us, we live in a constant state of wrath from God. And there are people who would argue against this. Well, well what about, aren't humans born neutral? Aren't, don't, we have, don't we have just, we're just created like a clean slate and then we're, we're pushed one way or the other or our environment or the impact of, of parenting or whatever the case, the school I went to, whatever the case may be. D doesn't it make logical sense? First of all, that's against scripture as I think I've made the case this morning from, from the Ephesians and Romans. But secondly, it's against human logic. Would it not stand to reason that if human beings were created neutral, that there would be at least a 50% chance of people choosing good and not evil? Doesn't it stand to reason logically that there would be pockets of perfect people who beget perfect people because they chose to be good in the first place? Just logically speaking, there would be something somewhere, a group of people, a single person even, someone somewhere would have chosen good. Does that not make logical sense? Is that seen in our world today? No. Even those who think they are cult-type people who go out and make a commune and put up fences and say, everybody leave us alone. Monks, monasticism, they can't keep it together. Look at Luther. No one chooses good because by nature we are, we are children of wrath before a holy God. So now we have been brought to the point where this looks absolutely hopeless. We are, we are in dire need of a Savior. We can do nothing to impact ourselves. Scripture is very clear. We need a Savior. Now let's look at verse 4. My third and final point this morning. To fill in your sheets, it's mercy and grace, verses 4 and 5, mercy and grace. I want everyone to read the first two words of verse 4 with me. The best conjunction in all of the Bible. You guys ready? Two words. But God. So everything we've talked about up to this point, the hopelessness of man, the dire need of a Savior, being dead in our sins, and then Paul comes and goes, but God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. This is the most beautiful conjunction in all of Scripture. But God, were it not for God, who is rich in mercy, all those years ago, Christ would not be entering Jerusalem as we would celebrate today. There wouldn't be palm fronds, fronds, fronds what? <laughs> palm leaves, okay, <laughs> thrown on the road. There wouldn't be coats put down for the donkey to walk on. There wouldn't be shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but God. 
Then we have this entire week where we have the privilege of looking back and celebrating the sacrifice that Christ made. Friday night, we're going to gather as a body and we're going to look at the three most impactful words that Christ said in his entire ministry. It is finished. And then Sunday, next Sunday, we get to gather again and finish verses 6 through 10. I'm not concluding yet. I'm just this excited about it. 6 through 10, we get to look further into the resurrection and celebrate God defeating death through Christ. All because, all because God said, but me, but my mercy, but my grace. But my love for you, the children that I have chosen. Remember in verse chapter one, or chapter one, excuse me, of Ephesians, where we learned that God takes his elect people and gives them to his beloved son as an inheritance. Because he loves his son, he loves us also so that we would be the gift to his son. Do you guys see how Paul sets this up so tremendously? It's stupendous that he would explain all of this salvation and explain to us that we are given to Christ as an inheritance to him. And then he comes down to verse four and goes, verses one through three, he tells us how bad we are. And he gets to verse four and goes, but God, because I love you, I have mercy and compassion on you. Because I have mercy and compassion on you, I'm going to give you grace and save you from me when you can't do anything about it in the first place. (laughs) That was a bit of a rabbit trail and I got even further out of my notes. So we're going to pick back up where we were. But I, I want us to understand the impact of that conjunction. But God being rich in mercy. Because... You can't have mercy and compassion without love. Did you know that? And you can't have grace without mercy and compassion. You can have mercy and compassion without grace, but you cannot have grace without mercy and compassion. And you cannot have mercy and compassion without love. At least some form of love. If you don't have a love for your neighbor as yourself, would you serve people that you don't know? By seeing them and having compassion on them, right? If you don't love your spouse, are you going to show them grace? If you don't love your children, are you going to be merciful to them when they mess up for the 18th time that day? Right? So God, but God, because he's rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive in Christ. Let's turn back to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read the first portion of the chapter as a whole because I want this to impact us. Now we get to pay attention to the good news. So I brought your attention to the bad news, making the point about God's wrath and his enemies. Let's turn back to Romans 5 one last time. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions, knowing that afflictions bring about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, 
and proven character hope. And hope does not put to shame because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Wow. What an amazing passage of scripture. Paul takes the idea that we've, we've, we've just read about in Ephesians and he gives us the details around it. So in, in, chap, in uh, chapter 5 of Romans, he's talking about God redeeming his enemies to himself. God making the ungodly righteous. God making the sinner alive. God changing the people that are children of wrath that he loves because he loves them through his son and redeems them to himself because his mercies never fail. Lamentations tells us that. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. The loving kindnesses, that's also mercy, of Yahweh indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion, says my soul, therefore I wait for him. This love of God is beyond all our understanding, brothers and sisters. It's beyond our human faculties to understand. In fact, from a human perspective, God's love is scandalous. Now that word may shock you. But when we think from a human perspective, Paul even talks about it in Romans 5, a man does not give his life for his enemy. In fact, Paul says he might do it for a really good man. Right? From a human perspective, God's love is a scandal that he would rescue his enemies to himself by his own sacrifice, by his own redemptive plan. It makes no sense to us. It makes no sense. In our human brains, we have to go, there's some sort of other motivation. There's something else going on here. If we saw a king today give himself for a bum in the street who was his enemy who had spat on this king's face who had broken every law that this king had set down and then that king sacrificed himself to pay for the penalty before that bum could be executed we would go nope there's something else going on like the conspiracy theorists would be out in droves would they not like it, it doesn't even make sense and that's why I say to a human perspective, from a human perspective, God's love is scandalous. We simply cannot comprehend it. It's beyond what we can understand. We cannot see it. We cannot understand it. And yet God loves us with that love because God is love. God's love is not an action, or excuse me, is not something that he does. It is who he is. He shows us that he is love by sending Christ because his love drives his mercy, which drives 
his grace. Martin Lloyd-Jones has this to say about this text. It is grace at the beginning and grace at the end, so that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace. But the grace of God, I am what I am. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. The last portion of our text this morning in verse 5. By grace you have been saved. We have seen the helplessness of the human condition. Paul makes it very clear. We're dead. We can't do anything about it. It's our sins and our transgressions. The world is against us. Our own flesh is against us. There's nothing we can do. And then he comes in and he says, but God, the greatest conjunction in the Bible, revel in the love of God, because by grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. And that's what I want us to rejoice in. Rejoice at a deeper level than what those whom laid those palm branches and coats down. Yes, they, they, were, they, were, they had an inkling that this may have been the Son of God. And he, he may have been who he claimed to be. But the, truthfully, the majority of the most of the Jews at that time thought he was going to conquer the Romans and reestablish the Davidic kingdom. They're motivated. They didn't even understand truly what they were worshiping. Brothers and sisters, we understand why we worship. When was the last time we proverbially put down a palm frond or our coats for the king? Our level of worship should outshine those who worshiped on that road in Jerusalem all those years ago. This idea of but God should bring us to another level of doxology that we haven't even seen before. And every Sunday we should gather as a body together Point one another, and I'll talk about this during communion time, point one another to our union, union in Christ. Because Paul talks about it. He made us alive together with Christ. We are unified with Christ. We are a body in Christ. We are together, co-heirs with Christ by his grace. And that should bring us to a place of rest and praise beyond all our comprehension. And that's my challenge to us today. Look at where you came from. The word formally, I told you I'd bring it back, right? The word formerly, you were formerly, dear saints, you were formerly dead, but you're alive in Christ. Formerly, dear saints, you lived according to the ways of the world, but because of his love. Formerly, saints, you chose to follow your lusts. That's all you cared about. That's all I cared about. But we, dear saint, because of his love, mercy, and grace have been saved. Rejoice in that. Rest in that. For it's by grace that we are saved. It is by grace that he will maintain us. It is by grace that he will bring us home when all is done. Let's praise God for that conjunction in verse 4. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you now, humbly thanking you for your grace 
We come before you now rejoicing. I pray, Lord, that we would be at a, at a, at a deeper level of worship, that we would think through this week as we look back in remembrance on the day that you rode into Jerusalem and shouts of Hosanna arose. Lord, I pray that we would, through your grace, by having this right understanding of what you've rescued us from, bring us to a deeper level of worship. Help us be united as a body around you and the sacrifice that you made of yourself through your love that feeds your mercy, that gives your grace. Lord, it is all of you and nothing of us. Dead men can do nothing, but God steps in. You stepped in, Lord, and we glorify you for that. Help us as we finish our time of worship today to be united around you. In your holy name I pray. Amen.